Waiting for Seconds is a podcast that talks about subjects of self-harm, suicide, eating disorders, and other personal subjects. If you don't feel comfortable listening to this podcast alone, listen to it with someone important to you. May that be a teacher, a parent figure, or someone you feel comfortable being with. Please enjoy the rest of the episode. This is Waiting for Seconds, the interview podcast where we meet people and ask them who they are and why they are. I'm Shannon Miller. I'm here with Malcolm Outkelt. And today we will be talking with uh, River. Go ahead and and introduce yourself. Hi, I'm River. Uh, I also use the name Jasper. Both are great names for me. I use them both interchangeably. I use any pronouns. And I'm also known to Malcolm here as uh, his old computer science teacher. He knew me then as Mr. LaFortune, and I since switched to using the title Mix, so Mix LaFortune. Got a bunch of names, all of which are acceptable for me. Hell yeah. Yeah, I I met Jasper in sophomore year of high school. Uh, Both my homeroom teacher... Uh, the teacher of my favorite class, my computer science course, and being one of the instructors slash supervisors of the robotics elective, uh, quickly became my favorite teacher. I'm, I mean, I'm a computer science boy. I love the computer science. I love the computers, and I love the way that he taught them. It was like both good and informative, and just fun. That's the way teaching should be, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. You were also in that class, so there was. Uh, our advisory, which was a whole experience, uh-huh. and then you were in that first period computer science class that yeah. was a whole experience. It was a it was a bunch of nerds who uh, I think the the phrase that I kept coming back to that year was like, so all of my classes uh, are a pain in my ass in different ways. This class was the pain in my ass pain in my ass in the most unique ways. <laughs> And then later on, I also joined uh, a math course. I don't remember exactly what right. math it was. It, probably, but... it must have been um, college algebra. Yeah, probably. That sounds mm. right. Yeah, because <laughs> I didn't want to do college algebra at CCD. Uh, okay. So, uh, we got a couple of questions for you. Awesome. Uh, let's start out with, uh, I want to know a little bit more about your use of two names. That seems like an important thing to you. Uh, how'd that come about in, like... How does that work for you? How does it feel for you? Yeah, it's been an adventure kind of figuring that out for myself and figuring out how to communicate what I want around that. Um, So I got the name Jasper for my birthday. uh, That's what I always tell people when they (laughs) tell me they like my name. Um, And it was a really great birthday gift from my parents. Um, The the history of it is really special to me. My dad was a geologist, um, and Jasper, if you don't know, is a semi-precious gemstone. It's kind of a multicolored, I think it's like a quartz sort of thing. Um, you can find it often on beaches. It's a really beautiful gemstone. My sister's name is Emerald, oh, so the running joke in our family <laughs> was like, she got to be a precious gemstone, and I only got to be semi-precious. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but it's it's something that's really precious to me. Um, we like there's a whole history of like my sister was going to be named Nick or Nicole because my dad proposed to my mom on Nick on Nick Peak. Um, and then like a couple weeks before she was born, my dad suggested if it's a girl, what about Emerald? Because he had proposed with Emeralds that he'd gotten in his fieldwork in Pakistan. Um, and my mom's response was kind of like, well, if she comes out and she seems like an Emerald, then we'll name her Emeralds. Um, and she came out and she seemed like an Emerald, so they named her Emeralds. And then, like, they couldn't reuse the whole Nick thing after naming one kid Emerald, because, like, Emerald and Nick, it's like, you have a favorite. Um, <laughs> so they had a bunch of names picked out for if I was a girl. Um, I think I was going to be an Iris. Um, but they hadn't really landed on an option for a boy child uh, until a couple weeks before. Again, my dad came up with, what? for a boy, what about Jasper? And my mom's response was the same. It was like, well, if he comes out of Jasper, then I'll name him Jasper. And I came out and I seemed like a Jasper. And <laughs> my mom was right. It really, it just fit for me. Um, I've always really valued that I have such a unique name. People tell me I sound like a like an adventure hero. Mm. Uh, especially when you like put together my full name Jasper Josiah LaFortune like what a swashbuckler absolutely um, yeah so like it was it was a really special gift and I um, I've never wanted to like put that gift away or put it on a shelf because I really like it um, I also found that like uh, especially starting during the pandemic when like a lot of social interaction stopped and suddenly a lot of the social pressures that people experience just kind of all the time as like the air that we breathe uh, kind of suddenly disappeared and I had a bunch more freedom to like think about my gender identity, what made sense for me, um, how I wanted to express myself in the world. And you know, I was thinking about like, well, what if I did want a different name? What would it be? And my uh, girlfriend then and still to this day, Rachel, said something along the lines of, like, I always thought River would be a good name for you. Um, and that was a couple years ago, and I kind of just, like, stewed on that for a while. Um, didn't really, like, make any moves on that, but it just sort of started to, like, build in my consciousness. And I was, like, more and more, I was, like, yeah, that's a really good fit. Like, we grew up uh, doing whitewater rafting on Idaho rivers. Um, rivers have always just been a really like integral part of my identity and sense of self. And again, people who have known me for a long time and know that history of me hear that and they're like, oh yeah, that fits for you really well too. Um, so it kind of became this thing where I was like, I really like this gift that my parents gave me of my name. And I also really like this gift that Rachel came up with for a new name. I don't want to have to choose between them. I think I'd like to have both. Mm. Um, and so then the challenge becomes like communicating to people because having two names isn't a super common thing, uh, how I want them to do that. And uh, one of the best metaphors that I've come up with is it's like I'm two frogs in a trench coat. So, uh, you know, River is one of those frogs. Jasper is the other frog. Um, whenever you use a, a new name for me, 
that frog gets to sort of clamber up to the top and and like be on the top and get their face in the sunshine. Um, so it's it's nice to have both, uh, just not like squashed together. If you try to fit like Jasper and River in the same sentence, it's like they're uh, they're both trying to clamber up to the top and it's chaos. So it's not like a different personality. It's just kind of uh, just a different part of you, right? I wouldn't even say so much a different part of me. Uh, people have asked that a lot, too. Is it like, you know, there's a side of me that's Jasper and a side of me that's River? Um, and like, no, I'm, I'm one person. I just kind of have two names. Um, okay. They, like, they're both, they're different ways of expressing the same person, but it's definitely like a unified, cohesive, singular person. And that's a that's a morally neutral statement. I definitely know people or know of people who uh, experience dissociative identity disorder, and like their different mm. names are names for different personalities they have. Um, and that's a morally neutral statement. It's just not the experience that I have. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, everybody has different experiences, and it's impossible to take that away from someone simply enough. Yeah. Um, well, uh, go ahead. So you were talking about how you uh, are were a teacher. Uh, are you still a teacher? I am not. I lost my uh, teaching job in I think it was January of 2021, and um, that was a time when. Teachers were mostly going back to working in person during the pandemic, but before um, uh, what's it called? vaccinations were widely available. And um, that kind of became the moment for me to decide that it was time to uh, get out of teaching and put my computer science degree to use. Mm. And how are you doing that? What are you working now? Oh, yeah, I'm a software engineer now. Um, I work at a little um, tech company in the Bay Area. It's actually really cool. Is that a pretty good job? It definitely has a certain cool factor for, like, um, you know, imagining 16-year-old Jasper hearing that I'm in the Bay Area working at a tech company as a software <laughs> engineer. Uh, it definitely feels like, oh, you made it. Um, it's also, like, it doesn't scratch the same itches that teaching did. Teaching uh, was a lot of hard things, but one thing it was never, one thing that was never true about it is it was never boring. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you can't have people like Malcolm in your class and and not just have an interesting fun time. Uh, not always fun, but it's all like it it's always interesting. It's always uh, an engaging challenge. Um, and pretty much the only moments when I was ever bored as a teacher were uh, during standardized testing. Now, I'd, I'd like to ask, what was like as a teacher, you're seeing the your how your students are their uh, their livelihoods and how they're growing with school. But what was your school life like? I had it pretty good. I think most teachers kind of have an answer to this question, and it, it falls, broadly speaking, into two kinds of experiences. People either become a teacher because 
they had an awful experience and they want to make sure that like their students don't have that or they had like uh one or two or a handful of really good experiences with really great teachers and uh that like inspired them to go be that teacher for somebody and i was pretty soundly in the latter camp um my little hometown is was in the state of idaho which like historically and continuing into today has been pretty terrible at funding public education but we were in a town that was um uh it was the uni- it was one of the university towns one of the mm. two flagship university towns and two or three in the state of idaho and that brought in uh, a lot of values that didn't necessarily align with the state's values and specifically a pretty big focus on education so most years when there was a, a school like bond levy on the ballot, it got approved. Um, and far and above the biggest uh, like impact that that had on my education was I only remember having one teacher in my entire K-12 education who had like anything less than a decade of teaching experience by the time I got to them. Because everybody was very good at their jobs. Everybody was very experienced at their jobs, and like on the whole, that generally tends to make them good at it. And if like yeah. I don't think anybody can go through American K twelve education and not experience like some teachers that give them a really bad experience and a bad time. Um, and I definitely had mm-hmm. a few of those, including experienced ones. But like far and above the worst time I had was with the one teacher who was new to the job. It was his first year of teaching. He was teaching, like, algebra in middle school, um, which just, like, what a losing proposition already. You know, just, just surrounded yeah. by students who don't want to be there. Uh, and, like, I wanted to learn math. I just wanted to learn it from somebody who could make the class interesting. And um, this is the first year. He didn't make it interesting, and he ended up quitting after that year. Um, but a lot of those veteran teachers were incredibly good at their jobs. Um, in particular, I have one, Gretchen Wisner was my gifted and talented teacher. And she knows that she is like a big part of the reason that I got into teaching. Um, she, so I was identified as gifted in first grade and then like had her as the GT coordinator for my school all the way through sixth grade. And then she also worked at the high school, so I took classes from her there. Um, she just did so much to like understand me as a human being, figure out what was engaging to me, and then like make my educational experience into something that could be engaging for me. Um, and it was it was just a huge deal. Yeah, having a person like that can be very very important for uh, an education, especially for someone so young and. Uh in maybe a weird spot like i know the gift and talent program was at least for me um but i want to know a little bit more about uh so close relationships like that often can become very very close i know that the last person we had on here one joe underhill he was also a teacher he talked about his students like family and maybe that's i want to know if that's a, a similar thing that you had how do you identify family? Yeah, that's a really good question. I I could definitely, you know, I 
have definitely had relationships with uh, students and coworkers in, in my teaching experience that were closer than I know a lot of other people's family relationships have been. Um, you know, when you're working that closely with people, you kind of get to know, like, the the deep, dark parts of them that, like, not everybody gets to see. I mean, I definitely had students who, like, came out to me before they came out to their own families. And, by the way, every time that happened, having to, like, do parent-teacher conferences or, like, talk at all to the parents of those students and then, like, purposefully misgender them or, like, misidentify them uh, was always so painful. And I would always just, like try to avoid using their name or pronouns at all and with Nick's success. But um yeah, your so child I've definitely was wonderful like, in my class. Was that? Yeah, I'd say things like your child was wonderful. Exactly. Or like Yeah, so talking about grades. Grades are going good. <laughs> you know, just like doing backflips to try and like avoid using identifiers, but without making it obvious that that's what I'm doing. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. And like, ultimately, you know, if somebody asks you to misgender them for their safety, that's what you do. So I, I mm. did do that willingly. It was just it was always an uncomfortable situation and you, you wish that the world was better so they didn't have to do it. But um yeah, so, like, I've definitely, you know, I think I've been, as a teacher, uh, like, a source of family for people, and also, like, creating spaces in my classroom that are safe enough that that can feel like a family. Um, I also had to learn, you know, I mean, I entered the classroom as a as a professional at age like 23 I, it was babies teaching babies in there um and i had to learn how to like have some boundaries so that it didn't just become family because like family get to kind of demand more of you um and i had to learn to kind of compartmentalize some of the like emotional trauma that comes with teaching and say like this does affect me, but I have to I have to let it not affect me as much as if I really were these people's family and kind of put that aside. And that was that was always really hard. Um, I think that what family is for me has always been, you know, there, there's definitely nothing sacred for me about like just the people that you happen to get born into a family with. Because um, like that's a complete roll of the dice. You might have shady parents. Um, and I, you know, I don't necessarily hold anything sacred about that relationship in general. In my case, I feel like I got pretty lucky. Um, my dad died when I was 16, so, like, he's out of the picture now. But while he was alive, he was definitely a big part of my life. And my mom was really great, and I'm really glad that I have her in my life. So it's sort of like, I definitely believe in chosen family over blood family, and as a part of that, I have, like, continued to choose my actual family or my uh, my blood family to, to be part of my chosen family. Uh, but I've also I've chosen to expand that. Um, one of the ways that I have been doing that is uh, I run a, I guess now technically twice a year, uh, comedy show. Um, it started out as the Dead Dad's Roast on Father's Day. 
Okay. So uh, I was, it just started one year, like about a week before Father's Day. I was, I got a, an ad for like quick shipping on Father's Day gifts. And I was like, <laughs> doesn't matter how quick you are, you're still going to be about 10 years too late. <laughs> and I like made that joke on Facebook and it was about 50-50 people who were like, I don't get it. What's the joke? And people who were like, oh my God, this is the funniest thing I've ever seen. And one of the friends who thought it was funny because his dad had also died was like, we should, we should get together on Father's Day. And I was like, we should do a comedy show where we roast our dead dads. And then <laughs> instead of just letting that like disappear into the ether, I was like, no, really, we should do this. And then we did. And, it was, and like a bunch of people showed up. It was, this was in the days of like Zoom like everything being online on Zoom. So mm -hmm. um, people were willing to kind of take a chance on showing up to a virtual event. Um, and they did, and it was a hit. And they were like, let's do this again next year. So I became the coordinator of, a, of an online comedy show. And then we just had, um, we just this year added one for the holidays. We call it the Turkey Roast. Um, so we just did that. And that has definitely become kind of a source of chosen family for people. Because um, a lot of the people who tend to connect with that sort of thing are people that, like, even if their parents aren't dead, they might be, like, no longer in their life. And so actively choosing to spend that time with their chosen family instead of their blood family is um, something that's very important to them. And I'm always really honored when people do that. It's yeah. a, a very good way to honor your honor your former honor your dad and uh, bring together family in a way that might never have happened yeah and i i feel very confident at least in my dad's case that like he would think it was hilarious it would be so much his style of humor <laughs> well uh, i actually want to note in talking about uh passing of your father uh, if you're spiritual or religious in any way. Yeah, this is uh, a really interesting question in spite of the fact that, like, it has, like, the short answer is just no, I'm not. Um, but there's, there's, like, a lot more nuance than just no. Um, so the longer answer is that I would consider myself both an atheist and an agnostic, um, I actually grew up in a, um, I loosely call it a church. It was the Unitarian Universalist Church, um, which I often describe as Sunday coffee for agnostics. Okay. It's, uh, it's, so it is a church, um, and their kind of thing is that they are non-dogmatic. So they don't preach any particular one set of beliefs about higher beings, gods, afterlife, anything of any of those things, uh, which doesn't mean that their congregants don't believe in those things. It's more that, like, you can come to this church as a person with, like, Protestant beliefs or with Jewish beliefs or with an agnostic or atheist set of beliefs or Muslim set of beliefs or whatever, um, the thing that you find there is community and like a shared set of values, which I think there's like seven tenets of which I've forgotten most of them. But the, the main one that I remember uh, kind of getting drilled into me as a kid was 
as long as you respect the inherent worth and dignity of every human being, you can be a Unitarian Universalist. Um, so that was kind of my experience growing up. I remember, you know, going to church every Sunday still seemed like a drag to me, uh, even if it wasn't, you know, uh, putting a doctrine on me. I still just, like, wanted to be home playing instead. And um, I remember being a little smart-ass to my mom one time, and I was like, so Unitarians can believe whatever they want, right? And she's like, well... Or my mom was like, well, as long as you... Uh, as long as you respect the inherent worth and dignity of every human being, yeah, like, pretty much believe whatever you want. And I was like, I believe I'm not going to church today. <laughs> uh, which did not work until... I basically had to go through a certain, like, get through a certain age of RE, uh, religious education, before my mom was like, okay, now you can choose not to go to church. And I mostly didn't. Um, but I still feel very grateful for kind of the, like, set of values that that experience gave me um, and the sense of community. And um, that was definitely a community that, like, very much shows up for each other. They were among the people that were there for us when my dad dad got diagnosed and um, definitely very grateful for that kind of set of values. Um, today, I would consider myself both an atheist and, and an agnostic. And uh, the reason I say both is because I, ha I had a really fascinating discussion one time around a dinner table with a bunch of people, none of whom were like, or in in an organized religion so all of them were like various flavors of non-religious all the way from mm -hmm. my mom who is like very explicitly spiritual and is probably the closest to religious out of the people at that table um but doesn't necessarily believe in a specific god or that she knows what divine powers there are, but thinks there are some, or, or feels that there are some, all the way to, like, some people at the table who were, like, almost a little condescending about that belief that felt like, how could you possibly believe in something so, like, woo-woo and, uh, like, unfounded? Um, but we, we had a really fascinating and mostly respectful discussion about it, and one of the things that kept coming up was, like, well, is that just agnostic or is that an atheist? Um, because, you know, my mom's kind of experience is that, like, she she feels with some degree of confidence that, like, there is a higher being. She's not sure what it is. Um, and as people were arguing and, like, trying to figure out, like, does that mean atheist? Like, there were some people at that table who were, like, very much atheists. Like, they actively believe that there isn't a higher power. Um, and then my feeling was kind of somewhere in between where like i don't have a belief in a higher being but i also don't know that i'm right about that um and whereas i think some people at that table were like i'm about as certain as it's possible to be like it would take jesus christ coming down in the flesh to perform an like incontrovertible miracle right in front of me for me to ever accept that there's anything any such thing as divine power in the world um and so i realized that that it's actually not like the picture that typically gets painted is that you have atheist on one end and then like 
monotheist or polytheist on the other end, and that agnostic is like somewhere in between that you're like sort of wishy-washy in between those. And what I realized is that it was more like there are two different axes. So you have, you can be atheist to polythe to monotheist to polytheist, which is about the number of divine beings that you believe in, zero or one or multiple. And then you can be anywhere from agnostic to gnostic about that belief. So my mom is... Um, I think that she is, I would basically describe her as, like, theist but agnostic. So she, like, believes that there is a power, but he's uncertain about what that is. I would describe myself as atheist and agnostic in that I don't really have a belief in a higher power, but I also just don't know if the, number, if the like, higher powers that I don't believe in, like, I don't know if I'm right. Um, and then you can also be, some people at that table were uh, atheist but gnostic, meaning they don't believe in a, in a higher power, and they feel pretty confident that they're right about that. Um, and, like, to be clear, all of those things are, again, morally neutral distinctions. Like, I don't think that there's... When I say, like, I don't think I'm right about that, I don't mean that in a, like, uh, you know, the people who think that they are right are... Uh, like forcing that belief on anyone because um, those are very much their individual beliefs that they have. Um, but yeah, I I like that question because I think it gets at a really interesting way of thinking about beliefs that is different than uh, than like the frameworks that I've typically heard. That very is it's very reminiscent of those uh, political compass ideas where. You're not just left or right, but there's up and downs and lefts and rights, and those are maybe not amazing to demonstrate things, but they are more in depth. Yeah, exactly. Just the notion that like there is more than one dimension along which people vary. You know, mm -hmm. as soon as you acknowledge that, it kind of opens up the realization that like this is probably more than two dimensional. Also, it's probably three and four and n dimensional. And I just don't know what those are. Exactly. It's good that you have that respect towards other uh, religions and other people. Because uh, I know I've met a few people in my Christian walk. Because uh, I'm Seventh-day Adventist. I've seen people who will just be a firm believer of this is the right way. And like browbeat people into believing them. And... I mean, that's not really the way to do it with any religion. Yeah, I big agree with that. Um, I think that, like, if there's a place that in, in that kind of alignment chart that I was describing that can, uh, that can be sort of ripe for people to get sort of paternalistic about it, it's like... Most commonly along the Gnostic side, so people who feel a confidence that their beliefs are right, which is a completely valid and morally neutral uh, way to feel, as long as it is describing yourself. Uh, mm -hmm. And then among both, like, Christians and atheists, you definitely find that, like, the, the folks who are certain that they're right and they're certain that you're wrong and 
they feel that your wrongness is their problem to solve. Like, that's where you start to get in, like, that's where my Unitarian Universalist values come up and say, like, this is disrespectful of the inherent worth and dignity of every human being. They have a right to decide their beliefs for themselves. And I don't vibe with people coming in and, and like, trying to change other belie- other people's beliefs that aren't harmful. Exactly. I mean, we we try and try and be like good to everybody because not necessarily like if you believe in karma, you want good done on you. You just want to have that normal respect to everybody and their religions and such. Um, going more into that, do you tend to be like an optimist or a pessimist? That's a good question too, and I like <laughs> if there's a theme here in my responses, it's probably like uh, I don't necessarily see it in that framework. If if I had to choose one of those two, I think um, I was listening to one of the earlier episodes of this, and uh, I think Aaron Wasco described something along the lines of like wanting to aspire to optimism, but like falling into pessimism more than he'd like. Um, And I think that is probably an accurate description of the way that I am. But I also... um, I I don't think that either of those labels is particularly useful in, like, predicting how I'm going to feel about something, how I'm going to react to something. Ultimately, I think what I believe is that, like, human beings are are good and they are doing their best trying to get their needs met and um when i see things that make me lose hope and make me feel more of the pessimism i try to look beyond the things that make me go like how could you be such an awful person and i try to look for like what is what is the unmet need that you have that is causing you to to like behave violently or or like cause harm to people in a way that like you feel that's your only pathway to meeting your needs for like safety or food or shelter or whatever it is mm. would you say that uh that humans are innately good just like deep down inside it's it's a again a situation where i almost kind of reject the question in that like um i mean you know i can't sit here and look at something like the colorado springs club q shooting that just happened recently mm-hmm. uh, recently as mm-hmm. of this recording i can't look at that and be like that's an innately good person <laughs> because um, like that's my community that's my people i was in colorado for five or six years and like that affected people that i'm close with um and like i i don't think i can look at something like that and say like that's a good person and they're fine um what i what i can do is look at that person and and say like it's really tragic that 
someone was exposed to so much violent propaganda and and had their emotional needs go so unmet and had access to a firearm that they could could like use at a moment's notice to like enact their violent vision onto the world it's it's really tragic that like that person's community around them and and their uh like their socio-political structures that surrounded them like allowed this to happen um do i think that 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 they were innately good no i still think that like they are a human being and um you know they don't deserve access to a firearm they don't deserve access to any kind of situation where they can cause harm ever again um but mm. they do deserve to like eat and uh like receive counseling and be sheltered and you know otherwise have their physical and emotional needs met because they had the misfortune of being born into a, a really hard world to be born into uh that wasn't something that was done with their consent they just they're a human being and deserve to have their needs met while also not allowing them any like any access or opportunity to cause harm ever again i'd like to move on to a new question what what do you think of society's idea of what a man should be or or a woman yeah so this is a question that definitely has another like very short answer but with a lot of nuance behind it so the short answer is i think those ideas are garbage um Society definitely does hand down ideas about manhood and womanhood. And, uh, you know, in queer circles, we call those things gender roles. There are things that are assigned and sort of um, even like forced onto people without their will. Um, and so the short answer is I think gender roles are garbage. Um, but this is also something that I've put a lot of thought into because, uh, for better or for worse, Gender identities exist and, and people feel a connection to gender. People feel a connection to manhood, a connection to womanhood. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about gender expression versus gender identity. So, um, you know, the the rough kind of picture of that, that that people told me when I was first learning what those concept meant was that like gender is sort of who you are internally inside and then gender expression is like how you express that, like the clothes you wear and the voice that you use and the, you know, whether you wear makeup and just kind of all the outward ways that you present to the world. Um, but I always found that kind of definition a little bit confusing because it, it gave this this like dimension of of identity, especially of queer identity, that is like somehow suddenly not under your control. So like, um, your your sex sexual orientation is something that you decide for yourself, um, not necessarily a choice that you make, but like you get in touch with the feelings that you have romantically about other people, and you go like, okay, this is what I'm feeling. If I choose to to attach labels to that 
those are my choice and I can really use whatever good faith labels I want as long as they feel right to me. Um, and the same is true for gender identity. You know, I find that, for example, the term man um, doesn't feel incorrect for me, but it also doesn't feel like it describes, it just feels incomplete. And so like gender queer is another label that I like to add to make sort of gender queer man. And that's like a choice that I make about my labels. Um, but then you get to gender expression and they're like, oh, that's the outward stuff. That's the stuff that other people see about you. And I always felt like, well, but does it matter like what I'm trying to express? And so I've, I've come to kind of realize from my own understanding that I like to think of gender expression as different from gender presentation. So gender presentation to me refers to those same sort of the outward stuff that like you can't really control how people perceive you like when i walk down the street people are going to see a man whether i'm genderqueer or not um but i think i like to think of gender expression like uh like artistic expression um and so like as a really basic example like uh you could identify like a certain artistic style like cubism and say like this artistic style used a lot of blue and then you could identify a different artistic style um i don't know classical like leonardo da vinci style paintings and be like this painter used a lot of brown and you could like generalize that like oh when you see brown now you must be looking at classical when you see blue you must be looking at cubism and that would obviously be garbage because like there's so much more that went into that artistic expression than just the colors that they happened to use um i found that's a, a much more helpful way of thinking about it for me um because like for example you could look at me and see that like you know i have facial hair on my face uh you can't actually see that because we're in an audio format, but like I, I do have facial hair and, um, you know, I really like to, to cook. I really like to cook for my girlfriend and just like make meals for people. And you, you could look at that from an outside perspective and think like, oh, well, facial hair is something that like traditionally men wear. So that must be like a masculine form of expression and cooking is traditionally an activity assigned to women as domestic labor so that must be a feminine activity that you're doing so like masculine plus feminine equals question mark um when in fact those things are totally reversed for me the way that i wear my facial hair is generally that i resent it and i want to um, as much of it off as possible but just don't feel like going through all the effort to like do whatever medical procedure I would need to get to go through to like not have it at all or like uh, go through all the work to shave every single day. So like the way that I am express the way that I'm expressing my gender identity through the way I wear facial hair is actually something that's very feminine. I want to like feminize my face by the way that I wear my facial hair. Whereas the way that I cook like a lot of the role models that I'm kind of following in the footsteps of, a lot of the people that I admire most the way they cook um, are male YouTubers. It's uh, Internet Shaquille on YouTube. It's Adam Ragusea on YouTube. Um, what's that? Uh, you Suck at Cooking on YouTube. 
some really great channels that like uh just happened to be the ones that i kind of admired their content the most and wanted to emulate the, that the most so i find that when i'm in the kitchen cooking the like role models that i have front of mind and therefore like the way that i'm expressing myself through cooking those are things i'm doing in a really masculine way so it's just this odd kind of dichotomy where like as an outside observer it would look like certain things i do are masculine certain things i do are feminine um but in actuality like the ways the things that i'm actually trying to express through those actions are completely reversed so though you may present forwardly you may be seen as masculine or feminine your presentation your choice of how you're doing it is opposite in some cases yeah in some cases and in some cases it lines up um it's just in general i find that like people don't realize how much so like when people look at art right they realize that like the thing that you are trying to the, the thing that the artist was trying to express and whatever message the audience actually gets out of that don't always line up and like you know there's debates in the artistic circles about like does the artist's intent matter or do you is it like important and valuable in art to like try to interpret what the artist was going for or can you just find whatever meaning you want but that's at least like a debate that people have whereas i feel like with gender people are only starting to wake up to the awareness that like a thing that i perceive as masculine or feminine in another person could be an expression of a totally different idea and like you know like an artist i feel like i try to put um put like thought and and consideration into uh how i express gender at least to the outside world and like i want people to like put the effort in to try and decode that Death of the artist and death of the gender. <laughs> sort of, yeah. Not nearly as tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, in speaking of masculinity, and this is something I often have, I mean, challenges with is a fair way to put it. Um, masculinity, as it generally is interpreted, is that you, as a man, uh, should not cry. But obviously that's not really how that works and i want to know about your experience with crying do you cry often when's last tried and cried in front of someone or by yourself yeah this is something i'm really proud of in terms of the way that i've kind of deconstructed gender for myself because um i can absolutely tell you the last time i cried and the last time i cried uh in front of people the last time i cried in front of people was um I do a thing every week called men's group. Um, and, you know, we have talked as a group about how, like, I'm not entirely sure that the label men applies to me. And they're like, yeah, you're super welcome here anyway. That's fine. <laughs> um, but it's it's a really important group because of that expectation um, and how it can be really harmful that people uh, that specifically people that are raised as men don't feel like they can cry um and so i mean it's 
it's more complicated than just having a group where like the point is to get together and cry because that would feel kind of silly and performative if you just had to like show up on a zoom meeting once a week and be like okay time to cry now <laughs> um but it's it's something where like we get together um there's kind of a theme of the week that like poses a question that's meant to get us like just feeling whatever feelings and experiences we've had in the last week and um it's been really eye-opening to realize uh how many things you know even being proud of how much i've kind of deconstructed gender roles for myself uh how often i carry like a week's worth of shit kind of in my backpack and then wait to kind of like unload it until this place where it's actually safe um so men's group is like reliably every every week like the the most recent time that i cry in front of other people um and then this last week in particular i had a really impactful session at men's group and kind of realized afterwards that i needed to do some personal writing to kind of gather and put together my thoughts and so um did some of that kind of process through my thoughts wrote it out into a format of kind of a journal for myself and definitely uh, some tears came up during that as well so yeah it's something i'm i'm very open about and very proud of that like um i cry frequently readily and pretty often um and i yeah i i feel really glad that i like i imagine I don't know, like six or eight year old Jasper would be like, you finally made it, bud. <laughs> That's a really nice, it's a very nice sentiment to sit down and cry with your boys. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, it's pretty lovely. Absolutely. This is interesting that you've, you have so many of these, uh, these groups, like your, your dead dad's uh, comedy show and this men's group. Is there any Our other groups? groups? Oh yeah, the turkey roast. Is there any other groups that you are a part of that uh, maybe have like built your character, or um, maybe to have just like help you see things in a new light? Besides, like your uh, what is it, the Universalist Unitarian that... Universalist? Yeah, um, I mean that congregation. I I pretty much stopped attending. Oh, good more than a decade ago now um i'd definitely say that men's group and the uh we call ourselves the dead parents society a la robin williams are two yep. of the biggest communities that i have right now um and then there's just kind of a you know a scattered social network of other people that i've that have like influenced me or made me feel safe um Obviously, romantic partners are a big one. Um, my girlfriend right now, Rachel, is incredibly supportive. And um, I think of the two of us, I was, like, pretty handily the one, and kind of still am the one that's more comfortable with, with crying and open emotions. Um, and, uh, you know, I also have a therapist, and that's, uh, like just starting but has already been a, a major impact um, i've my my mom and uh a handful of various friendships throughout the years that have all been really really major impacts 
So uh, a couple episodes ago, we had a uh, cam on and she really pressed the importance of she mentioned uh, her therapist and just how important her therapist was to her. And I want to know if you've had a similar experience with your therapist. Is it a very uh, for you? Has it been a very impactful thing to your life to have that therapist connection? So uh, the therapist that I have now, I think we're on only like our third or fourth session total. Um, and I definitely find that I like it takes me a while to kind of build up a relationship of trust with the therapist. So mm. this particular sort of set of therapy sessions, um, th the impact hasn't had a lot of chance to be like a huge thing in my life yet. Um, I definitely, uh, definitely want it to be and hope that it will be. And, um, you know, if, if there comes to be anything, this is also just like generally good advice. If there comes to be anything that's like a barrier with that therapist, that's like preventing therapy from being really impactful for me, then like, we will definitely talk about that and see if a different therapist is a good fit. Um, Throughout the year, so like people have different experiences with this. Um, I have always kind of gone with just like whatever therapy was like convenient and inexpensive and like around me, which has meant that like so in college we had like the counseling and psychological services, and you kind of just like showed up and then they would pair you with a therapist, was which was amazing and please take advantage of that while you have it if you're in college because uh, it never will be that easy ever again um in uh when i was teaching and in my job in my first job after teaching i had something called an employee assistance program where you had to uh basically call like a service that your your employer contracted with and be like yo, I'm doing not great. Can you pair me with a therapist? And they'd be like, tell us more. And then they send you like a list of like 20 different therapists, most of whom aren't even seeing new clients and you have to like call them on yourself. Um, now I have an, uh, a therapist through my insurance. All of which is to say, um, I have kind of bounced around from therapist to therapist, which does kind of have the consequence that like the first several sessions, you're still just like getting to know each other and and figuring each mm -hmm. other out. Um, mm -hmm. I have had some really impactful ones, though. My one of the one of the therapists I got paired with during college um, just had like a really easy time building a sense of rapport with me, and she gave me a bunch of tools that I kind of like still rely on all the time. One of the biggest of which was I was having a lot of issues with like negative self-talk. I would be really harsh on myself and I was feeling really down about the fact that I like, I also had like negative self-talk about the negative self-talk where I was like, man, you're just really cruel. And she kind of helped me recognize that, like, I am not a cruel person by nature. That is not a way that I naturally am to anyone else. And I'm actually pretty skilled at being supportive to my friends. And when they, like, show me their flaws, because everybody is flawed, 
I like still am there to be supportive and I'm like generally going to see the best in them in spite of their flaws. And so the like trick that she taught me that has stayed with me to this day is like, you're your own friend. You can treat you like a friend. Um, And so I started calling myself out when I would like say something mean to myself. I'd be like, hey, don't be mean to my friend. That's my friend. Uh, and it really, it was really just this kind of funny and really effective way to like interrupt my self talk because I was like, yeah, I wouldn't talk to a friend like that. Um, and it's 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 not the right tool for everyone. I've like introduced a lot of my friends to that when they were going through negative self talk, and I find that a lot of people have the idea that like, yeah, but I'm the only one that's allowed to to say mean things to me because like I'll tell it to myself straight. They have this idea that like that's actually a valuable service that they're providing by like having real talk or whatever. Um, so it, it doesn't necessarily help everyone, but like I've always kind of been the type that like, there's no amount of closeness to a friend that I can get where I'm, I'm like, yeah, being like, like if I have to call you out, if we're close enough that I feel like, comfortable and empowered to call you out on something that you're doing that's harmful. I feel like as your friend who's close to you, I have even more of the burden of like breaking that to you gently and like Mm -hmm. approaching that in a way that will feel emotionally safe for you. Um, And so I I have very much the same compassion for myself. Yeah, so like therapy in general has been super impactful. Um, this this particular therapist, we're just still getting there. Mm. Well, uh, I'd love to ask one more question as we're wrapping up. Um, kind of a, a peak a pinnacle of the podcast. Ultimately, and this might very well be another question that you answer somewhere in between, or the question is flawed. <laughs> Do you think that nature or nurture or is more important to a human's development? Yeah, I think uh, I'm, I am probably going to dodge that question a little bit or, or <laughs> the premise uh, just because, like, I think it depends a lot on, like, what thing you're trying to ask about. Because, you know, you're trying to ask how tall a person is going to get. Their genes definitely matter a lot. And also their access to nutrition essentially just uh, determine so like if you have genes that allow you to be up to six foot two and then are malnourished as a kid you're not going to be six foot two um but like usually people aren't sort of asking about that in the context of how tall someone's going to be um i i feel like to kind of like infer context into that question it it's usually the question of nature versus nurture when it applies to people seems to come up the most when it's either like, you know, how did you end up the way that you are? And also, like, why are some people bad and some people are good? Um, and in regards to the latter, like, I, I think this ties very much into my feeling of, about, like, optimism and pessimism and, like, people being good or bad in that, like... um. I'm undecided about whether 
whether people can have inherent goodness as a quality. I'm definitely decided that like inherent badness is not a quality that anybody is born with. Uh, and I very much believe that people's actions that we consider bad, people's actions that we consider harmful, um, are are definitely the result of uh, them not having their needs met. And you even, you know, you talk, you hear about like, you know, those true crime shows and podcasts often talk about like, you know, psychopaths who just don't have any feelings. I'm like, yeah, but even like mentally ill people are, are far more likely to be the victims of violence than the perpetrators of it. And like, even then you have to ask like, what caused a person who like doesn't experience emotions in a neurotypical way to then go commit violence? It's not just a one-to-one -one relationship of like, you don't have normal person emotion, you don't experience emotions in a neurotypical way and therefore like murders happen. Um, so, you know, like in, in, the, in relation to like, people being good and bad, I think that um, nurture is much more the role, like it plays a much bigger role in those behaviors. And then like the implication of that is like, well, th that doesn't, that doesn't excuse the behavior. That just means that like taking responsibility when someone does something harmful means, um, means in addition to them taking responsibility, in addition to them taking accountability, you also have to look at like what aspects of society made this person violent or harmful. Um, so that that's kind of how I feel about that question. And then in terms of like how do people end up the way they are, uh, I just like I I don't know and don't care that much like whether the way that I am is the result of un, like the result of like my my DNA or something about my very nature or whether it's the result of people around me. Um, because again, the the question is like, is it hurting anybody? If it's hurting anybody, I have a responsibility to change those. Whether whether that requires like you know removing myself from the situation because I can't change myself or changing myself anyway. Um, and if it's not causing anybody harm, then like. Just let me be the way I am, regardless of whether it is the result of my nature or my surroundings. Hmm. So ultimately, the question is less, is nature and nurture more important and more, how do we actually fix the problems that are happening? Yeah, how do we... I think that's very... Like, how do we address behaviors that are harmful? And also, like, very much... Uh, sometimes you got to recognize that, like, the way that people are isn't a problem it isn't causing harm and you can just let them be you don't have to ask like how did you end up being a little weirdo because if if you being a little weirdo isn't hurting anybody then just let them be a little weirdo <laughs> well uh, thank you very much uh, we really appreciate you coming on i think that's where we're gonna wrap yeah uh i personally just want to say thank you uh just because there's there's been so many things in this conversation that like have just been brought into my eye and just something I'm definitely going to be thinking about um, in the future. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I'm glad to hear that. I do want to say thank you to Nadia Diaz for our podcast cover art. 
you can find her Instagram in our description. That is at heart, Head Creations, no spaces, no capitals. Uh, and that, like I said, is going to be in the description. And then, of course, I want to thank uh, Jensen Crawl, who made our intro and outro for this podcast. Um, I mentioned last episode that he just released a demo for a musical that he's working on. It's uh, the musical's called Tea Time, and the song is called Knocking on Doors. You can find that song on most platforms. Um, that will also be provided in the description. But uh, once again, thank you uh, so much for coming on the podcast. There's it, it was really fun to get to know you and understand your perspective on the world. Yeah, it was really fun being on. Thanks for having me. Um, and thanks for listening. See you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye.